section one hundred and thirty of china japan and the islands of the pacific this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org recording by jim locke of floyd virginia the world's story volume one china japan and the islands of the pacific edited by eva march tappan section one hundred and thirty the missionary and the cannibals by reginald horsley new zealand was visited by the navigators tasman and cook the island is one of the british colonial possessions and in nineteen hundred and seven it took the name of the dominion of new zealand the editor the taste which the maori had acquired for wandering outside their own country at length brought about a remarkable conjunction destined to bear most importantly upon the future of new zealand it was nothing else than the formation of a friendship between a christian englishman of singular nobility of character and a maori of sanguinary disposition a warrior notable among a race of warriors and withal a cannibal of cannibals in the first decade of the years when george the third was king there was born in yorkshire a boy who was brought up as a blacksmith for some time he followed his trade but having a strong inclination towards a missionary life he was ordained a clergyman of the church of england and in due time found himself senior chaplain of the colony of new south wales this man whose name must ever be honoured in the history of new zealand was samuel marsden who was the first to desire to bring and who did actually bring the tidings of the gospel to the land of the maori there were missionaries at work in tahiti in the marquesas and in tonga but new zealand the land of the ferocious warrior and savage cannibal had been esteemed an impossible country or at all events as not yet prepared for the sowing so it was left to itself then came a day when samuel marsden walking through the narrow streets of sydney stopped to gaze at a novel sight not far from him stalked proudly three splendid-looking men types of a race with which he was unfamiliar they were not australian aboriginals that was instantly evident their faces were strangely scarred their heads held high were plumed with rare feathers and the outer garment they wore of some soft buff material suggested the roman toga there was indeed something roman about their appearance with their fine features strong noses and sternly compressed lips mr marsden was from the first strongly attracted to these men and being informed that they were new zealand chiefs come on a visit to sydney the good man grew sad that such noble-looking men should be heathen and cannibals inexpressibly shocked him and he determined then and there that what one of god's servants might do for the salvation of that proud intellectual race that by the grace of god he would do a man so deeply religious as samuel marsden was not likely to waste time over a matter in his judgment so supremely important 
the chiefs readily admitted the anarchy induced by the constant friction between brown men and white though it was not to be expected that they should realize at once their own spiritual darkness mr marsden was not discouraged and set in train a scheme whereby a number of missionaries were to be sent out immediately by the church missionary society to attempt the conversion of the maori to christianity twenty-five of these reached sydney where men's ears were tingling with the awful details of the massacre of the boyd and judged the risk too great so they stayed where they were and the conversion of new zealand was delayed for a season the residence of meek and peaceable men among such intractable savages was deemed to be outside the bounds of possibility but marsden firmly believed that the way would be opened in god's good time and waited and watched and prayed possessing his soul in patience the opportunity which he so confidently expected arrived in eighteen fourteen some ten years after the birth of samuel marsden another boy was born on the other side of the world hongi ika was his name a chief and a chief's son of the great tribe of the Nagapuhi in the north marsden had swung his hammer over the glowing iron and beaten out horseshoes and ploughshares hongi too swung his hammer but it was the hammer of thor and every time that hongi's hammer fell it beat out brains and broke men's bones until none could be found to stand against him yet hongi had a hard knock or two now and then and being as yet untravelled gladly assented when his friend ruatara who had seen king george of england suggested a visit to sydney hongi found plenty to interest him and also took a philosopher's delight in arguing the great questions of religion with mr marsden in whose house he and ruatara abode marsden knew the man for what he was a warrior and a cannibal but so tactful and persuasive was he that before his visit ended hongi agreed to allow the establishment of a missionary settlement at the bay of islands and promised it his protection so the first great step was taken and marsden planted his vineyard he was a wise man and knowing by report the shortcomings of the land he desired to christianize took with him a good supply of animal food and provision for future needs as well in the shape of sheep and oxen with a view to the requirements of his lieutenants he also introduced a horse or two what impression the sight of a man on horseback made upon the maori may be gathered from the experience of mr edward wakefield twenty-seven years later at wanganui in this district which is on the opposite side of the island to that on which mr marsden landed and considerably farther south the natives had never seen a horse result they fled writes mr wakefield in all directions and as i galloped past those who were running they fairly lay down on their faces and gave themselves up for lost i dismounted and they plucked up courage to come and take a look at the curry nui or large dog 
can he talk said one does he like boiled potatoes said another and a third mustn't he have a blanket to lie down on at night this unbounded respect and adoration lasted all the time that i remained a dozen hands were always offering him indian corn maize and grass and sow thistles when they learned what he really did eat and a wooden bowl of water was kept constantly replenished close to him and little knots of curious observers sat round the circle of his tether rope remarking and conjecturing and disputing about the meaning and intention of every whisk of his tail or shake of his ears it was for long all endeavour and little result but other missionaries arrived new stations were erected in various parts of the north and the wesleyans seven years later imitated the example of the church missionary society and sent their contingent to the front to the fighting line these went indeed for they settled at wangaroa where the sunken hull of the boyd recalled the horror of twelve years before tara himself was still there the memory of his stripes as green as though he had but yesterday endured the poignant suffering he rendered vain for five long years the efforts of the missionaries and from his very deathbed cursed them urging his tribe to drive them out so that they fled thankful to escape with their lives for they saved naught else if mr marsden hoped to turn the philosopher warrior cannibal from the error of his ways the good man must have been grievously disappointed hongi remained a pagan but he never broke his promise to the missionary he was a terrible fellow but he was not a liar his word was sacred and he regretted on his deathbed that the men of wangaroa had been too strong for him when they drove the west missionaries from their station leaving mr marsden and his colleagues at rangihoa hongi returned to his trade of war and for five years or so enjoyed himself in his own way then tiring again of strife his thoughts turned once more upon foreign travel this time his ambition soared high and with a fellow-chief he sailed for london under the wing of a missionary he was exceedingly well received for the horror and fright with which the new zealanders had been regarded was greatly diminished in eighteen twenty one and britons were again looking longingly towards a country so rich in commercial possibilities so hongi found himself a lion and with the adaptability of his race so comported himself that it occurred to few to identify the bright-eyed little fellow with the ample forehead and keen brain with the lusty warrior and ferocious cannibal of whom startling tales had been told even his majesty george the fourth did not disdain to receive the napoleon of new zealand and being perhaps in a prophetic mood presented the great little man with a suit of armour hongi would have preferred a present of the offensive kind in the shape of guns and ammunition for the nagapuhi had early gauged the value of such weapons in settling tribal disputes and had managed to acquire a few though not nearly enough to meet the views of hongi ika 
the king had set the fashion and his subjects followed suit so lavishly that if hongi had chosen to lay aside his dignity and open a curio shop he could have done so the little man was overjoyed he was rich now and he gloated over his presence as a means to an end what a war he could wage if he could only find a pretext pretext did not as a rule trouble hongi but the eyes of the great were upon him and it would be just as well to consider appearances as he recrossed the ocean his active brain was at work planning ah if he could but find a pretext hongi had been absent for two years and with right good will the tribes of the northeast wished that he might never return however with the dominant personality of the little man lacking to the all-conquering naga puhi there was no knowing what might happen so the tribes around about the thames river whose frith is that thing of beauty the haraki gulf took heart of grace marched to the fight and slew among other folk no less a person than hongi's son-in-law here was indeed a pretext hongi clung to it as a dog to his bone in sydney he had melted down so to speak his great pile of presents into three hundred stand of arms which included a goodly share of the coveted tupara or double-barrel guns ammunition was added and thus with a very arsenal at his command hongi ika came again to his native land he came armed cap a pie for he wore the armour which the king had given him and the good mihonari stood aghast at sight of him even now the tribes are fighting they groaned when is this bitter strife to cease pretext indeed to avenge his son-in-law was all very well utu should be exacted to the full but here was a pretext beyond all others and the wily hongi instantly seized upon it fighting are they he grinned as only a maori can grin i will stop these dogs in their worrying they shall have their fill of fighting he grinned again that will be the surest way my mihonari friends i will keep them fighting until they have no more stomach for it and so shall there be an end he muttered under his breath because their tribe shall be even as the moa as the moa was extinct the significance of the addition should be sufficiently clear hongi kept his word he always did that and sailed for the front in the proudest of his fleet of war canoes with a thousand warriors behind him armed with mare and patu and spear while in his van went a garde de corps of three hundred picked men fondling so pleased were they the three hundred muskets and tupara for which their chief's presence had been exchanged southward through the hauraki gulf he sails into the estuary of the thames into the thames itself one halt and the totara pa is demolished and with five hundred of its defenders dead in his rear hongi sweeps on southward still to matakitaki four to one against him what care hongi ika and his three hundred musketeers it is the same story fierce attack and sudden victory ruthless slaughter of twice a thousand foes and hongi grinning in triumph 
ever keeps his face to the south and drives his enemies before him as far as the lake of rotorua hongi when in battle as a rule shone resplendent in the armour which george the fourth had given him and which was supposed to render him invulnerable the belief received justification from the issue of hongi's last fight at hoki anga in eighteen twenty seven for some reason the great chief wore only his helmet upon that fatal day ill fared it then with roderick dhu when on the field his targe he threw ill fared it with hongi when he rushed into the fight without his shining breastplate for hardly was the battle joined when a bullet passed through his body and the day of the great hongi the lion of the north was done fifteen months later as he lay upon his death mats at wangaroa feasting his glazing eyes upon the array of clubs battle-axes muskets and tupars set around the bed he called to him his relatives his dearest friends and his fighting chiefs and spoke to them this word children and you who have carried my arms to victory this is my word to you i promised long ago to be kind to the mihonari and i have kept my promise it is not my fault if they have not been well treated by others do as i have done let them dwell in peace for they do no harm and some good hear ye this word also the ends of the world draw together and men of a strong race come ever over the sea to this our land let these likewise dwell in peace trade with them give them your daughters in marriage good shall come of it but if there come over the sea men in red coats who neither sow nor reap but ever carry arms in their hands beware of them their trade is war and they are paid to kill make you war upon them and drive them out otherwise evil will come of it children and you my old comrades be brave and strong in your country's cause let not the land of your ancestors pass into the hands of the pakiha white men behold i have spoken with that the mighty chief hongi drew the corner of his mat across his face and passed through the gates to the waters of ranga the abode of the shades two and twenty years from that christmas day when samuel marsden preached his first sermon in a land where christianity was not even a name four thousand maori converts knelt in the house of god the editor end of section one hundred and thirty this recording is in the public domain recording by jimlock of floyd virginia